Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm John McEnroe. I'm Bjorn Borg. This is Martina Navratilova. I'm Mats Wilander. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. And you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. We have a very special guest on the Tennis Podcast for you today. Somebody who topped the world rankings back in 2003, 2004. He won a Grand Slam title. He will forever be remembered for the incredible Wimbledon final, the third one of his three that he had against Roger Federer in 2009. So coming up to the 10-year anniversary, it is Andy Roddick who's going to be joining us here on the Tennis Podcast. Absolutely delighted to have him with us. And uh, if it's a show you think somebody else you know might be interested in listening to, do let them know. Here's Andy Roddick. Andy, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing, David? Very well, very well. Uh, you know, a couple of people have uh, I've spoken to recently have said, "What does Andy Roddick do these days?" So, what does Andy Roddick do these days? <laughs> uh, everything, and nothing, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, not much in tennis, uh, unfortunately. Um, but uh, a couple of young kids, uh, a boy Hank, who's three and a half, and a little girl Stevie, who's sixteen months, and a um, bunch of different business ventures, still running uh, our, our foundation. Uh, in Austin, Texas, and uh, you know, trying to manage uh, the logistics of life with a, a wife who's equally as busy. So it's uh, it's 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 all good. It's uh, chaos most days, but uh, but great chaos. You you say not much in tennis, unfortunately. Do do you mean that? I mean, do you, would you like it to involve some tennis? Yeah, it's not so much of uh, you, you know the, the thing about tennis is that you have to travel to do it, right? You have to travel, whether it's any job. I mean, you, you the, the jobs you have, you still have to go to the content, right? Or if you're a broadcaster, you have to be at the matches. Or if you're a coach, you have to be on site if you want to do your job well. Um, and for me, I, I wouldn't want to take on a project in tennis unless I felt like I could give it the proper um, time commitment and uh, respect that it deserved. And I, I, I can't do that uh, right now. I'm not willing to you know, one of the things when I retired is that uh, I promised myself that I would never uh, not control my geography in, in the projects that I was doing for, uh, you know, in a you know moderate way. I mean, obviously, you know, I, I get away for a day or two at a time, but um, that was very important to me when uh, when I retired because I had essentially been on the road since I was, you know, 12 or 13 years old. Um, so that's something I really haven't compromised on, but I, I, I love this sport. I said everything I have in my life is because, of, uh, of of the sport of tennis, whether it's relationships or business contacts or, um, you know, kind of a, a lane to talk about the foundation. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all because of it. So I certainly uh, kind of miss it and we'll, we'll always have uh, an immense love for it. And you're still a young man. We've seen recently James Blake 
become Miami tournament director. We've seen Marty Fish become the new Davis Cup captain of the United States. I mean, there's still time, of course, for you to do, well, all sorts of things. Could you imagine when the kids are a little older and maybe the time commitments required for the other logistical elements of your life are different, could you imagine wanting to come back into the sport in some way? And what do you think you, you would take your interest? I just don't know um, because it's hard to kind of project forward, you know, 10 years, um, you know, kind of with, with everything going on and uh, kind of different projects and, you know, different irons in the fire. You just, I, I don't know what, I know what my home life will look like in 10 years. I know what my, my life as a father will look like in 10 years. I know what my general geography will look like in 10 years as far as interests and what works and what doesn't and kind of what will occupy the time, what will be more challenging. It's hard to kind of uh, predict that. And, you know, it, kind of life is a general response to those things. Um, so, you know, I think the intent to get back into it at some uh, in some way, shape, or form uh, will always be there, and uh, you know, hope, hopefully, kind of uh, everything will come together, and that'll that'll be possible down the road. We've spent a lot of time over the last year and a half talking to and about Andy Murray, as of course all British journalists do anyway. But obviously, interested mm-hmm. in him because of his his struggles with with injury and and his love for the game and his 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 struggles to come to terms with the fact that his body's not letting him play it anymore. I just wonder whether. What what you replace it with? Because I mean, you've described a lot of things that you do in life now, fantastic things. But how do you how do you replace it? Because it's an incredible lifestyle, isn't it? And and I suspect he's he's wrestled with that over the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing that would be a mistake is the expectation of being able to replace it. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know that that I don't know that there's anything that will ever replace the you know the the minute after a huge win on center court at Wimbledon or, you know, the process of working for something for years and years and years and hundreds of hours of your life and then achieving it. You know, I, I don't know that that exists anymore. Um, you know, I've, I've talked to a number of different athletes and you know, basketball players and football players and some of them who are still active and they're curious what, you know, what's retirement like. And I, the best piece of advice I go start planning for your life after you're given sport while you're playing it. Um, you know, I, I kind of dabbled in, in, in the, in the radio space and the media space. And I was doing, you know, radio shows from Melbourne, Australia during the practice week before the Australian open, um, kind of seeing if I liked it and if I wanted to pursue that, but to kind of get a gauge, I, I think the biggest mistake you could make would, would be to wake up, you know, retired and say, okay, now what, now what, what do I do? Um, obviously the progression will change and you'll have to make decisions that will come to you. But I think you, you always need to have a reason to kind of jump out of bed. And, um, you know, Andy certainly has a, a family that I didn't have, uh, many children, um, when I retired. Um, so obviously he's going to, he's going to certainly have enough to do, uh, in that space, but he, he's, he's super, super smart, super analytical. Um, so he, he's certainly not one of the ones that I, that I worry about. I think there's going to be a, you know, a sadness and some kind of, time getting used to it and when something's taken away that you've been doing from you know five six seven years old there's certainly a period of uh, of mourning but um he's certainly not someone that i worry about long term no i think we probably felt similarly about you really back in the day and i think probably even you felt that didn't you about your own career i don't think you were particularly worried when you when you stopped even though there's some sadness 
Um, no, I, I don't know that I was worried. I mean, I, I think you always, you feel a little bit of melancholy about it. You know, it's this, it's this new beginning and it's exciting. You don't have kind of the day-to-day uh, stresses or, or, or pressures or expectations or, um, you know, you don't have to share your life uh, as much. And for, for me, those were all all, uh, all positives. But then, you know, you I, I, I wouldn't, it's weird, I, when I turned on a tournament, if it was kind of a you know a tournament in the city that you know, I've been to a couple times, or if it, if it wasn't something like a Wimbledon or US Open, I really wouldn't kind of get that thing where I missed it too much. But when I like passed a, 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 an empty track at like seven in the morning, you know where I used to put in the hours, and that's kind of where I felt like I would win. I always joke that I would win thirty matches during the off season. Um, you know, per per year, so it was weird. I like I like missed that part of it. I was a little I was a little backwards, but um, you know, I, I was always very confident in, in what I was going home to, and I think that's a big part of it. You know, for for a lot of people, they're not only leaving the tour, but they're they're leaving their social life. You know, a lot of people's kind of primary social existence is on tour, so that's that's also a hard thing that I don't think gets talked about enough. Yeah, well, I mean, and. You're you're sort of loosely referencing almost the mental health of of athletes, and it's such a talking point in in life generally. I I've, I've spent an hour on the the phone this afternoon with with Janka Tipsarevich, who was describing seven surgeries that he went through uh, over the last five years, and he's now back on the circuit, and and the sort of struggles that that he had to try to you know deal with the fact that he wasn't what he used to be, and that he was still trying to be. Can, can you? I mean, you. You always came across certainly on the on the circuit as somebody who who didn't sit around for long. You went from A to B and cracked on, and if that didn't work, you pushed on to the next goal or the next obstacle. But is it is it challenging mentally on the circuit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think so. I I think there's it's twofold though because you you answer this and it can get taken two ways, right? You know, a, a professional athlete who can play tennis for a living and make uh, a great living, um, you know, acknowledging anything that might be hard is sometimes taken, <laughs> you know, not well. So I'll, I'll enter into this with, with respect to, to that, to that point of view, but certainly when you're, when you're kind of putting in you know, months and years of time, getting back to where the upside of, 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 of all that effort might be your shadow of your best self, yeah, I mean that's that's hard, isn't it? Right? I mean, and that's not something that most people in another industry, you know, David, your best story or your best interview might be ahead of you, and you'll always have that. Um, when when an when athlete gets kind of behind the the injury, uh, you know, I, I guess on the wrong side of the injury, they, they it's hard for them to think that we might fool ourselves or we might live in kind of the sense of denial for a little bit, but. Um, yeah, I, I can certainly relate to to what, uh, or I don't know about relate, but understand what 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 Yanko is is, is talking about, and certainly uh, empathize with it. It's it's a pretty big anniversary tennis wise for you, maybe for not the the happiest reason because it's ten years since your match with Roger in the final of Wimbledon, and, and although you didn't win it, it's for many people one one of the ones they remember the most that you were you were involved with. I I just wonder. Looking back at that and looking back at your career and, and now you've got young kids, what what do you think when they're old enough, if they show an interest in your career, what, what do you think you might like to tell them about it? What do you think you might like to show them? 
I don't know that I would really volunteer anything. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't really think backwards too much. Um, you know, obviously, you know, you see people and they talk about it and whatever I do and whatever successes I may or may not have in other parts of my life, I'll always be kind of associated with, with, uh, with tennis and, you know, certainly with, with, with that match as well. Um, you know, I guess one of the things I, I always took pride in was kind of being able to, to you know, I lost way more than I won. Um, you don't win every tournament you enter. You know, I won 32 of them out of I don't know how many, and that, you know, puts you in pretty good standing. Um, you, you, you leave most weeks disappointed <laughs> with, with something, right? It's rarely you leave and it's like, okay, I'm, I, I won the week. Um, you know, so I, I always took a little bit of pride in, in, in kind of getting up off the mat. Um you know, tough losses is a tough loss and you chew on it. It can affect, I, for me, I, it could affect me emotionally. I could be upset about it. I could be sad about it, but I could also get on with it and, and get my work in. Um, you know, so for that month after, uh, Wimbledon and, you know, you don't know if you're, you know, similar to what we talked about the ankle, I didn't know if I was going to get back to that stage and I ended up not, um, getting back to that stage, but it's, it's certainly uh, a little bit of heartbreaking, but I always kind of found, a certain amount of therapy and, and getting back, getting the work back in, right. Getting on the track, sweating, you know, kind of getting it out, taking out maybe some anger, uh, training, um, for, for me that the, the, the kind of training mechanism always, always felt like home, always helped. And I, you know, I, I took a lot of pride in being able to kind of take my knocks, take my shot shots, take my punches and, 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 and kind of pull myself up and, and, uh, and, and kind of get on with it. Yeah, I was I was listening back to an interview you did with us about five years ago when we were at the Royal Albert Hall, and you were you were talking us through the aftermath of that match, etc. So there's no no need to go through through the old ground of that. But I'm curious about the fact that the rules this year have changed, so that your match ended sixteen fourteen, and I just wonder if you'd have been offered a tiebreak at twelve all back then, do you think you would have taken it? I honestly don't know, David. Um, my, my, normally against most people, I'd say yes, but my, my tiebreaker record, you know, uh, throughout my career against Roger was, was pretty bad. I think uh, I haven't, I haven't seen the numbers. I don't know what the numbers are. It just feels like it was kind of bad. Um, so, and at that point I hadn't been broken all day and I felt like I was actually getting into Rogers, uh, service games on return, um, pretty regularly. Um, the other thing, the conditions, like the, the shadow kind of creeping across throughout the, throughout the afternoon, um, ended up kind of being tough for me to deal with, but it could have been just as easily been tough for him to deal with. So kind of bringing in those outliers, which are a bit of an equalizer sometimes, um, those are all things I probably would have thought about. And, you know, retrospect is easy, but in the moment, I, I honestly don't know. I don't think, I, I think most people would assume I would say, obviously, yes, I would have taken the tiebreaker, but I actually don't know if I would have. Mm. Yeah. And I think I'm right saying you, you served second throughout that fifth set, didn't you? Uh, yeah, yeah, because I got, I got broken the words, yeah. Do, do you feel that that, generally speaking, is a big difference in a match? I mean, I don't know about that one specifically, but I mean, if you are serving second, do you feel there is more pressure on you? Well, I think the tougher part would have been, had I broken, you know, that just not being the match, right? but actually going through the process of breaking serve and then kind of having to serve it out for one and that's a hard thing to do. Um, you know, so I, I, I think people try to give me that excuse, um, for that fifth set and yeah, sure. It's hard, but sports is hard. You know, if you want to be Wimbledon champion, you're going to have to do something that's 
not comfortable. Um, so I, it's honestly not something I think about as like, I look back at that match and it's not like, well, if I had a surf person that just said it would have been mine for sure. I, I, I don't, I don't know that. And it's, it, it's honestly not in my mind. It's not as big of a deal as people try to make it. Which of the, the final set situations at slams that we now have, because all four of them are different. I think it's, Standard tiebreaker at the US Open at six all. It's first to ten at six all at the Australian Open. It's twelve all standard tiebreak at Wimbledon, and it's played out at the French Open. Which one do you like? Uh, I don't. I don't know that they all have to be the same. And you know, I like. I like kind of the. I think the fifth set kind of early shootout in New York fits the tournament, right? Um, mm. Yeah, I don't mind it. Um, I think the other thing we need to talk about it at, at, at Wimbledon is, you know, the, the, you can only play for so long at night. So you do need a cap, you know, the whole time I kind of have a little bit of a different take on it than, than a lot of people. But, you know, last year I'm watching Anderson Isner and, you know, certainly the drama is there. Um, you're wondering who's going to give out physically and who can hold and, you know, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, as, as much of a, a draw of, of a semifinal as those two guys are, I'm guessing, you know, uh, they don't let kind of the undercard uh, at a rock concert play five times longer than the main band. And Nadal and Djokovic were still supposed to play that day. Um, that gets bumped to the next day. And then you're stuck with the problem of, do we put it before the women's final? Do we put it after the women's final? What's appropriate? What pays uh, the appropriate amount of respect uh, to, to the women's match? Um, so for me, my mind went to like programming business sponsors. Are we doing everyone in the kind of circle and orbit of tennis justice? Um, and, and I, I think maybe no, what would have, would have been my answer as far as kind of the business metrics of, of, uh, of tennis. And I think when it becomes a little bit more predictable and at least people can kind of schedule, uh, their day around seeing the matches they want to see, I think, I, I think that's going to be probably beneficial, to tennis in the long run, but yeah, certainly. I mean, I'm a fan. I, I want to, the matches we remember are the ones that go forever and, you know, have the high drama and that's amazing. But, you know, we all, we also used to watch VHS tapes. You know, I, I just never a fan of doing something a certain way because just that's the way it's always been done. I, I think we constantly need to innovate and adjust to uh, our market and our viewers. Yeah, well, I must I must admit the first time I ever went to the Australian Open was when you you beat Eunice Elenawi twenty one nineteen in the fifth set. And I, if somebody had told me then that I would ever think that a final set tiebreak was a good idea, I would have thought they were mad. But I, I I would go for it now. I must say. Yeah, it's and there's no right answer. It's, it's people kind of in, in everyday life. <laughs> In, in culture, we, uh, we, we kind of, uh, deal in, in, in absolutes and it's either you're right or you're wrong. And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. It's just, you know, what's most beneficial for the game is how I would approach it. Mm. Um, w- with that in mind, do you think you would change anything else about tennis? Generally speaking, the scoring system, for instance, would you, would you go to best of three from best of five ever at slams? Yeah, I wouldn't say we should never do it. Um, you know, my, my argument for best of three would be, you know, we don't we don't have a home team. You know, we don't have we're not the, the the New York Yankees where we can count on people coming regardless just because they like our team. You know, I, I think if anything has been proven in the last five years is that when our icons of the sport play longer, whether it's Rafa, whether it's Roger, whether it's Serena. 
uh, Venus, the, the, the game is better for it. Right. And so, you know, if, if I'm not saying I'm on that level, but just as an individual, like kind of decision to be made, if I'm required to play, you know, and by rules of the game at the time, I think it was, I was required to play 18 events, you know, probably expected to play Davis cup, um, you know, three out of five at kind of Davis cup, all the slams, and I'm going, that's a tall order. And that probably affected, you know, whether or not I thought I could get through it physically. Now, if you give me best of three sets, I probably still feel like at a slam, I can catch lightning in a bottle and make a run to a semi or a final. Um, therefore, you know, kind of keeping maybe a name in, in, in the game longer. And I, I think there's probably a trickle down effect from that. Um, how much longer would Roger be able to play if it was three sets? I mean, I, I think that's a, a discussion that should be had. Um, because I do think it's important to keep uh, our, our individual stars in the game as long as possible. Hmm. One of those individual stars, Novak Djokovic, you, you mentioned him at Wimbledon. Extraordinary to think that he went on, he, he won that incredible match against Nadal, and he's won the last three slams. Here he is on 15, you've got Nadal on 17, you've got Federer on 20. Could, do you feel now that they are within reach? I mean, Federer's total? Oh yeah, I think so. I I know I, I don't I, I would be surprised if someone said no, that's out of reach, um, for those guys. I mean you have to as long as Ralph is healthy, I mean he seems to be healthy for the clay court season every year. Um, so as long as he's healthy, uh, you have to make him the favorite there, right? I mean, there's every chance he has eighteen and if you can sneak in another one, I mean as long you know, so certainly and, and for Novak it's just a matter of, you know, mentally can he get up for it? Can he avoid kind of that that lull that he had um, seemingly from a mental perspective uh, for those couple of years. And, you know, can he maintain, you know, that's one of the most impressive things about Rogers, his ability to maintain uh, competitiveness, uh, will, um, the ability to be away from home for that entire, his entire life when he's got a pretty good gig the, the day that he <laughs> decides he doesn't want to play anymore. Um, yeah, but they're, they're certainly within reach. It wouldn't surprise me if any of those three kind of had the lead when it was all said and done. Wow. It's pretty extraordinary to think, isn't it, that, I mean, you, you shared a career with them, with three of the all-time greats at the same time doing it together. I mean, it is mind-boggling, really, isn't it? Well, the, the, the crazy thing is, in the conversation I kind of have just, you know, whenever um, whenever I'm talking about tennis, is, you know, they, they, they're like, oh, Roger Rafa, and they, they kind of don't talk about Novak as much or, or whoever I'm talking to, I, I say... You know the, the 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 names that you'll kind of be in awe of. If I say Agassi, they're like, oh yeah, he's one of the best ever. You know, or I say Connors, and they go, oh yeah. Or I say McEnroe, and they go, oh yeah. I go, okay. You know, Andre had uh, the, the, those guys had seven slams, eight slams, and eight slams. Novak has fifteen. So let's just let's just give the proper context to what he's done. And the only reason he's not the best of all time is because of these other giants that have been playing at the exact same time. I go, you need to tune in and you need to enjoy what's in front of you. Mm. Yeah, do you know, I remember years ago you, when you were doing your podcast with my my favorite person in the world, Bill Reiter, and you had a uh, a <laughs> you had a you had a discussion about who's the greatest out of Jordan and uh, LeBron James. I think it was on, on that mm -hmm. show. What? In your mind, if Djokovic, say, for instance, got to 21 or 22 and finished ahead of them, would you would you have any hesitation in anointing him as the greatest of all time based on that? No. I mean, he's won. I mean, it would come down to, you know, the only way you couldn't is if he hadn't won the career Grand Slam. His head-to-head -head record is uh, he has a winning record against both of them. 
um, you know, is he's certainly done the work in master series events also, you know, you know, that would be, if you were arguing, making an argument against Pete, you know, it'd be like, okay, well, they won, these guys won 30 something master series titles. And I think Pete won 12. Um, that's not saying that Pete's not amazing. It's just saying these guys are amazing all the time in every tournament. And that's a level of you know, consistency, focus, and excellence, you know, yada, yada, yada. But I, I, I don't know past just, I like the other person more, how you would not call Novak the greatest all time if he, if they finish with the most slams. Hmm. That's fair. And uh, meanwhile, Serena's trying to do the same. I mean, I think in many people's eyes, but now that she has gone ahead of Steffi Graf, they feel that that is the, 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 the most relevant record that she's on 23 slams officially she's well she's one behind margaret court who's on 24 different era of course it's it's getting harder for serena williams obviously she's been through a heck of a lot um with the the complications she had in childbirth but she still reached two slam finals last year what what do you feel do you think she will manage to get a couple more i think she will um just because i know how damn stubborn she is um, you know, I know that she wants it and I know, you know, she's not used to, to, to not getting her way. Um, and she normally kind of exhausts, you know, every possible thing to make sure that that happens. Now it, it doesn't get easier. Um, I don't think it's as easy as, you know, as it's been for the last 20 years where it, the conversation is if Serena plays great, she's going to win. Um, I, you know, I think, uh, geez, I mean, she, she almost like, she almost died during childbirth. I mean, it was a serious, serious, serious issue to, so to even come back from that. And I think, you know, she's, she senses she's so close and, you know, it's just, it's, it's not easy. You know, the, the, the beauty about sports is nothing's given. There's no script, you know, it, history doesn't care because Serena wins. You still have to go out and win seven matches. You can't, you know, you don't win six and then they just give it to you. It, that's the, that's the beauty of sports. It's hard every day. And, um, I, I think she'll get there, but it, you know, the, there's a certain beauty in, in the fact that it didn't just happen right away. You know, she's, she, it shows her grittiness. It shows how she wants to get back and, um, you know, but she'll, she'll, she'll get there. Obviously she, she needs to be looking at, 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 you know, the French will be tough. Um, but you know, if I'm her, I'm, I've, I've, I have Wimbledon circle. I mean, she came, came back there and almost won it last year with pretty much zero reps and zero match play, zero confidence and, and still almost pulled the, pulled the rabbit out of the hat. And she almost pulled the rabbit out of the hat at the U.S. Open, ran into Naomi Osaka. Obviously, things kicked off pretty spectacularly during that final. And you, I seem to remember, were initially, certainly immediately on on her side, critical of the officiating. Did you did you change your view after that? Yeah, a little bit. I was I was in the stadium, um, so I didn't have the benefit of of kind of TV coverage and and everything else. And kind of the more I thought about it, I, I think, I, I think the, uh, I think the official probably was a little embarrassed. Um, I think there was maybe some ego. I think it probably could have been handled a little bit differently. And I don't, I don't think anyone was right. And I think everybody was wrong. Um, you know, the, the, the criticism that I would have of, of, of Serena and, you know, she's a dear friend of mine and, um, you know, if she was on this call, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change what I had to say. Uh, when you, you know, I was, I was pretty crazy on the court and I said, like, I've done worse. Um, but I don't think I've done worse when I've already had a point penalty. Right. So I think situational emotional management, uh, matters. Um, you know, I would do a lot of things when I had a warning and it, or if I had no warning to get a warning that were terrible, but 
I, I think I was aware enough to where if I had a point penalty, especially in a match like that, that I wouldn't do anything that would leave it up to the umpire's discretion. Do I think the umpire, you know, uh, went too far? Well, yeah, it's my personal opinion that he did. I, I you know, I think he probably should have chilled out. She didn't cuff. She was, you know, like, she was going at him hard and she certainly said some things that he might not have agreed with, but you know, I don't know that it was on sportsmanlike conduct as, as it's written, there was nothing broken. There was nothing, it had already been broken, but not, you know, each instance is supposed to kind of be, uh, 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 you start with a clean slate, right? So, um, yeah, I, I think she was wrong just for realizing like she shouldn't even allow him to be able to make an overstep when she's there with a, with a point penalty that would lead to a game penalty. You mentioned that she is, that you know how stubborn she is. She has, <laughs> has never spoken to us really about uh, about the situation afterwards other than what she did at, at the immediate time um she's never s- f- told us that she thinks in hindsight maybe i, I got it wrong do you, do you think she might feel differently about it now i don't know I, I i honestly haven't talked to her about the incident um you know we kind of see each other here and there um now but you know i also feel like she's probably still getting through it herself. Like it's a weird thing to kind of feel like emotional and as athletes we're defiant when we leave the court, you know, I, I certainly said things and believe them. And then in retrospect time, you know, uh, allows us to, to think a little, a little clearer, but you know, she, she doesn't need to sit down with anyone. She doesn't need to go through it. Her focus is elsewhere. She doesn't need to focus on, you know, regurgitating, you know, last September if she wants to, and she finds it therapeutic and she feels like, she should get something out there or she wants to get something out there, then that's certainly her call. But we're, I don't think we're owed anything. Um, you know, she certainly uh, has given us enough great moments and we like her because, and we love her and respect her because of, uh, of, of what she does on the court. Um, you know, so I, I'm sure in time she'll talk about it, but she certainly doesn't have to. And maybe her focus is forward, not looking backwards, but you know, uh, she'll, she'll probably get to it eventually. Mm. You mentioned she's a dear friend of yours, and obviously you've you've known each other a long time. Who who is the Serena you know? It's a Serena that I wish uh, everyone would know. Um, you know, it's it's someone who will come over and and kind of hang out in your kitchen and laugh and joke. And there's there's no walls up kind of a, a, around her. Um, easygoing, great sense of humor. Talks about all the normal stuff that everyone else would talk about. Um, you know, she feels, she feels comfortable. And I, I wish kind of more people got to see that, that, uh, that side of her, but I, you know, I, I certainly respect and especially as, as, as kind of media has gone this way, you share, everyone wants everyone to share everything. And then once they do, there's immediate backlash, there's social reaction, it blows up into, you know, whatever. So, you know, I, I can understand that people don't even want to kind of go and bring that into their lives. Yeah. I think I can probably too. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in, being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Um... There's a lot going on in the sports off the court at the moment, Tandy. Um, I don't know how closely you've followed it, but uh, the ATP uh, CEO, Chris Commode, is going to be leaving at the end of the year. He's had six six years, I think. Um, what's what's your take on it all? I remember during your career, you were you were at the forefront of of arguing for a greater percentage of of the pie for players from what certainly the biggest most successful tournaments we're making. That's something Janko Tipsarovic was speaking strongly about to me earlier. What What is your take of, of the job that Chris did from your vantage point and the, the decision not to renew his contract? So I don't, I don't know a lot of the particulars. I'm, I'm, and I, I, I try not to be one of those guys who is uninformed and an expert at the same time, if that, may, <laughs> if, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. I don't know the inner workings. I have talked to zero people um, about the politics of it. I'm not too concerned with it. Um, one thing I've, I have felt for a long time and I am on record as saying is that I do think players need separate representation from tournaments. I don't think you can negotiate in good faith and for the best interest of everybody on the same side of the table. I just, I just don't think, you know, no other business runs that way. You know, it, it just doesn't, it just doesn't really work. Um, you know, and I, I think the powers that be have been kind of betting on division, whether it's, you know, clay court schedule versus hard court schedule versus doubles cutoff versus, you know, who knows what. And, and kind of all these, they're not little decisions in the moment, but I think there are bigger decisions that would deserve focus um, from a player's perspective. 
And I think we get caught up in the minutia of, of, of kind of the smaller individual self-serving decisions. Um, you know, so I, I, every kind of big global sport uh, seemingly has a, a, a players union where there's an independent voice where it's not as if we're against anyone. It's just, hey, we want our own separate voice. And when we come to the table, uh, there needs to be some, you know, dialogue with respect and there doesn't need to be a tie-breaking vote with someone who's supposed to be representing both sides that just makes no sense to me mm. yeah i suppose the the challenge is who's going to step up and actually be prepared to to do something about it because one of the things yanka was saying that with novak being the president of the player council it's it's pretty exhausting trying to combine being the greatest of all time <laughs> eventually and uh, and at the same time trying to run the pot the 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 good of the sport um in a political stage yeah and it's tough because the other thing that i think um the tournaments and tours and davis cup and uh, you know kind of all the people the slams um i think they realize the only huge huge powerpoint that players can leverage to really get attention is participation um, which puts the players in a really bad spot um, and it would be a PR nightmare um, if they chose to exercise that. Uh, I do think that it would they would probably get a lot of what they wanted <laughs> if, if they decided to, to to use something like that. Maybe they throw an exhibition for charity somewhere in the vicinity of whatever um, you know tournament they weren't playing. Um, but you know, it, it is something that would be exercised in a different business um, if if it was a point of leverage. Um, it's just. When, when there's love of the game and the players don't want to alienate fans, and I, I think that's uh, the, the onus has kind of been put on them for a long time, and, and they certainly haven't um, they haven't exercised that option. Um, but you know that's that's certainly uh, you know it, it, it would be ugly, but um, in the long run, it'd be better for the players ranked 60, 70, 80, 90. You know, maybe someone 200 in the world could actually make a living playing tennis. So. Um, you know, I, I don't know. It's it, there's, there's no comfortable conversation if you actually want uh, big results. A mm. couple of final points. You you played a lot of Davis Cup in your time. You were part of a winning team. You were you always had your hand up for it. What do you think of the the proposal or the new uh, version of the Davis Cup that we're going to be getting this year at the end of the year in Madrid? I hope they find a better week um, eventually. Um, I think it's hard to tack on uh, 10 days of, you know, super intense uh, competition that, um, you know, is supposed to mean as much of a slam when you're kind of running on fumes. Um, I think that would be hard. I, 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 I do think change is necessary. I hate that it took an event like uh, Labor Cup, you know, to where they were getting the big names and Davis Cup names and to kind of, I, I feel like the, the ball was in Davis Cup's court to make change, make adjustments, make it a biannual event, make it, you know, there, there were a lot of options. And I think they waited till the last possible scenario until someone else kind of forced their hand. To me, that was, that was irresponsible. Um, I, I think it was, I, hopefully it's not too little too late. Um, I felt like they had to make a change because it's, it's just only so much tennis that can be put on a body and traveling. Um, especially like my most nervous matches and my most exhausting matches a lot of time were in Davis Cup. Like it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge toll um, and, and, and responsibility. So um, I, I hope it goes great. Um, but it, to me, on the outside, it's just been frustrating to watch it kind of 
uh, it's been a very passive process. Basically we're fine. We're Davis cup. We're fine. We're Davis cup when, um, they could have been very proactive without any competition, uh, for a very long time. Mm. Fingers crossed. Um, final one, Andy, you, you, you've presented your own podcast. You're, you're talking on a podcast. Do you listen to podcasts? I, I do listen to podcasts. What do you listen, I, I listen to? to? A lot of podcasts. I listen to, uh, Gladwell's revisionist history. I listen to Guy Raz, how I built this. Uh, I listen to a lot of, uh, NPR. I listen to a podcast, uh, called, uh, called planet money. Um, and I'll kind of check in with, uh, you know, kind of some various local podcasts sometimes also. Mm. Uh, and, and how's your golf? Cause that, cause Tim Hammond became the world's greatest retired tennis player golfer, uh, pretty much when he retired. How's yours? Uh, Tim needs to check in with with uh, with fish. Oh right, fish is fish, fish is disgustingly good. Um, I'm 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 not quite as good, but I'm I'm good enough at golf to know that I'm not very good. Uh, and you've you've got some sort of golf um, initiative going on at the moment. I saw a picture on on social media. <laughs> what what's this course that you're you're involved in? Yeah, it's 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 funny. Nothing. So it's. Uh, little project but it's a little course in outside of chattanooga and tennessee it's a little it's a cool story it's uh it's called sweetens cove and um basically this guy rob collins is a really kind of artistic golf mind um architect he would kind of uh he found this basically dying municipal course in tennessee and uh kind of rented equipment built this golf course shaped the land by himself he was also the head pro he would shag balls he was the attendant he would drive something out he basically wore 14 hats for this little uh golf course that he created um since then it's gotten you know a lot of love where it's one of the top 50 courses in the country and it's, and it's only nine holes and he's created this kind of amazing thing and it's, you basically check in as this little shed trailer thing um there's no real plumbing so uh you know whatever um you can you can do the math on on on, on that weirdness but um, we just thought it's a, it's a really cool story. We feel like, uh, there, there's probably some, some branding to be done, um, down the road. We have a kind of a strong leadership group. Um, and we have some ideas that will kind of be announced in, in, in time. But, um, basically we just want to create a sustainable model. It's a great place for a father to be able to take his son for a low price point and play one of the best golf courses in the country. Um, but that model has been challenging. We want to make sure that it's always in place, but, uh, that requires creating ancillary revenue so uh we're, we're certainly walking walking through that uh uh walking walking through the strategy and we'll, we'll we'll kind of have something down the road it's all great andy the only thing is i think i listen to this and i do think crikey this feels like such a waste for tennis that you are not involved in it in some way that you i mean i, I think it's great that you have all these other interests but at some point i would hope that you would be able to find something in tennis to direct your energy and your well your brain power into yeah i i would too um there, there's a lot of there's a lot of politics in tennis there's a lot of uh there's a lot of things that kind of make uh make it hard um you know so you know we'll we'll, we'll kind of see how all of this all of this shakes out and where where tennis is at in a couple of years but um you know i, I certainly love it i love watching it um, I, I still love going out and hitting balls. I love the innocent parts of tennis, and 
Um, you know, I, I even miss you sometimes, David. No. <laughs> you're right. You're right. I don't, I don't know. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> Let's end on a truthful note. Um, no, seriously, lovely to have you with us uh, on the podcast, Andy. Um, I hope the best for you and for your family. I hope you keep well and hope to see you soon. All right. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. So there's Andy Roddick here on the Tennis Podcast. Really thrilled that he was able to join us and give us so much of his time. He is somebody that I remember coming on the circuit when I was working at the ATP tour as a communications manager going back into the well the early 2000s I remember seeing him play for the first time in Miami I think in about 2001 and to be honest for the first few years I I didn't get on particularly well with him it, certainly I found him difficult to get along with I didn't I didn't really understand where he was coming from he was incredibly energetic he was incredibly fiery um he was incredibly funny as well I mean a good laugh to be around but um as the years went on I started to get him and understand that as well as the the fun you could have with him in press conferences, and I, I have to say he could make you feel and look stupid sometimes. If you asked a stupid question, my goodness, he didn't just paper over that. He would let you have it. He would let you know about it, and it was uncomfortable at times. But I don't mind that. That's a challenge. And as I encountered him more, I realized what a what a decent guy he is how loyal he is that's always something that always struck me about Andy Roddick he seems such a loyal person and the 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 chap who arranged this interview for me is is somebody who's part of his team now and is the son of a, a of a London taxi driver that Andy Roddick met uh, well over 10 years ago and befriended and now is a, a firm friend of the entire family sees them speaks to them all the time and just that kind of guy. He's a really family-oriented type of fellow. He's given me a couple of interviews now, and uh, and I always enjoy his company, uh, and and hope you enjoyed listening to him as well. You can hear there just how much he has to offer this sport and and anything he throws himself into. And yeah, let's hope that Andy Roddick is going to become a, a big part of tennis once more. I'm sure he will in the future. I'm fascinated to see what it is going to be. If you've enjoyed this show, we hope to bring similar types of interviews for you again in the future. This has been the Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph, executive produced by TennisBalls.com with our mascot, Rio, with a Y. And uh, do tell your friends about this show. Let them know that it's worth listening to if you've enjoyed it. And we'll see you soon. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.